best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. A look back at this historic week and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at Coside, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Julie Carr-Smythe, Statehouse Correspondent for the Associated Press. Michael Daniels, co-publisher of Outlook Magazine. And Mark Weaver, Republican Strategist. Welcome to Columbus on the Record. A year and a couple of weeks after his surprising Iowa caucuses win, Barack Obama this week took the oath of office as the 44th president of the United States. It was one of the most intensely anticipated inaugurations in the nation's history. Nearly two million people drove, rode, flew, and walked into Washington to witness the historic change in power. On this day, we gather because we have chosen hope over fear. Unity of purpose over conflict and discord. On this day, we come to proclaim an end to the petty grievances and false promises, the recriminations and worn-out dogmas that for far too long have strangled our politics. Michael Daniels, let's start with you. What did you think of the whole event, and what did you think of President Obama's speech? Um, I think that regardless of what your political orientation or, or affiliation might be, you couldn't watch this without, I think, a really deep sense of history. Being one of those people, I was born after Kennedy, so I was, I'm a Johnson baby, and this was really the first inauguration where I felt the whole country was engaged in this. It was a historic moment and everybody knew it. And so, uh, looking out across the National Mall, looking at faces that looked very much like like all of America and seeing that level of energy, I think, was one of those things that I may only see once in my lifetime. As far as the speech goes, um, in, in, to be short, I wasn't impressed. Okay. Mark, what, you, what were your impressions? I agree with Mike. Uh, it was a mediocre speech <coughs> from a speaker who was normally very good. Uh, it's an historic moment. I mean, let's all recognize that. Uh, I'd like to think, the hopeful part of me would like to think, that had we been inaugurating Thomas Sowell, the brilliant African-American economist, or Condoleezza Rice, the African-American Secretary of State, that we would be equally as excited because it is a milestone for our country. Some of the hype, however, is driven by ideology, but let's not, let's give that moment to a very important hysteric time. We have broken the barrier of race uh, and the, uh, the, the founding of this country was crucibled on that issue and that to get past that is an important part for our country. Darrell, your thoughts? Uh, I think I think you're absolutely right. Those of us who, who heard that speech in Boston when, when Senator Obama s sort of first burst on the national scene, uh, if you heard his speech in Iowa in the, in the fall of 07, if you heard him on, on election night, um, that national broadcast from Chicago, that was just eloquence of, of our age. So he is setting a high bar for himself, if nothing else. I think expectations maybe have gotten a little out of hand going into this. Um, that said, maybe it wasn't a time just for eloquence. Maybe he was almost sending a message saying, you want soaring rhetoric, fine, but there's a lot of work. Yeah. And that's, that's a little more arcane. And let's get down to the nuts and the bolts. He has lowered the expectations quite a bit since he was elected. Do you agree, Julian? This was part of it. 
Yeah, and I think that, uh, as Daryl says, it need, needed to be a serviceable speech in the sense that he had a lot to say to a lot of people. He had to, he had to unify um, the nation, in a sense, in front of this huge audience, just an amazing size of audience. And in addition, you know, he had to speak to countries all over the world, and there was a lot of pressure on that speech to, um, to really have n a number of messages in it. Well, let's unpack this notion that Daryl has suggested about the lowering expectations, because clearly that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But let's be honest about what that is. He over-promised during the election, got elected and realized, there's no way I'm going to be able to do these things. I need to now ratchet down expectations. Voters ought to at least understand that that's what <coughs> happened. It's a bit of a bait and switch. I'm hopeful that things can get better in our country, but I also know that he promised a lot of things that will be undoable. And we talked about this on the show before. Governor Strickland has similar phenomena in 2006. He is now finding out there are no magic wands. President Obama will find out there are no magic wands. I think you're right that he did dial the rhetoric back. I think that the night before at the concert, the rhetoric was still there. I think that the, the speech that he gave the, the day or two before the inaugural speech was actually much more like the Obama we'd seen on the stump. It was much more, but, it, but he was talking to, for preaching to the choir, if you will. Um, I also think, just to be fair, you're right, he's ratcheted things back, but I think to be fair, he started the campaign two years ago, and the economy has changed dramatically over the last two years. So things that he was saying he wanted to do two months or 18 months or even 12 months ago have become undoable now with the current state of the economy. And so I think he has no choice but to backpedal. Um, I think the Democrats will call that realism, and I think the Republicans will call that bait and switch. Well, and the whole, the whole ceremony, I mean, did uh, attempt at, at more of this unification, as I'm talking about, which isn't necessarily going to thrill uh, the way that the campaign did, because the campaign was, was supporters and, you know, who were in awe. Can we, can we get to that? And is this, can we eliminate or reduce, anyway, lessen the divisive politics we really have seen for the past 16 years at least. Maybe you'd even maybe go back 20 years to the, to the first President Bush, which maybe is when it began. Um, can, we, can this president, this administration, change that or lessen it? Right? We were think? asking this same question eight years ago when yeah. George W. Bush came in. But yeah, he said, or not the well, that's right. And yeah. In Texas, he had a reputation for doing that. But what he found was that Washington, I used to live and work in Washington, mm -hmm. the city is built on partisanship. Mm -hmm. It changes people when they get there. If Barack Obama can change that city, good for him. I, I think it's unlikely that he will, particularly when his first decision upon being elected was to name Rahm Emanuel, one of the most partisan Democrats in the Congress. To Did be Washington change George W. Bush? Because he was part of the partisan bickering well, as well. I think it did. Certainly, he uh, he wound up becoming much more of a spender than he probably ever predicted he would have. Mm -hmm. He wound up getting captured into the whole Washington back and forth with the parties. Every president does to a certain extent. It's just a good lesson for us to remember that during the campaign, things that are said are probably not going to come true, and things that are done after the campaign mm -hmm. are much more realistic. And that's but what Mark, we're seeing from Obama. That, that, does that mean that governors are that we're at a disadvantage as a nation if we elect governors? Uh, because, you know, we did that with, with Clinton, we did that with Bush, and, and certainly they hadn't been in Washington, they didn't know how it worked, and, and Washington may indeed have changed them. With Obama, that's a little bit different. Wa Obama's been in Washington, so one would think that if there was going to be some sort of initial dazzling and, and, and that was going to happen, 
with Obama, it would have already happened. So he'll be going back to Washington, just living in a different place, not not being the newcomer on the street. On I the worry that he said what he needed to to win, which part politicians of both parties do. It was an ironic moment to watch him give his inaugural address with his flag pin <laughs> on his lapel after the Democratic primaries, where he said, listen, I'm not going to be the kind of guy who has to wear a flag pin to make a point. He found out that it was easier to put on the flag pin than it was to argue about the flag pin. Well, let's also not lose sight of the fact that this president has a lot more political capital, uh, certainly, than, than George Bush did when he first came in. Uh, not even winning a popular majority yeah. of the vote. Bill Clinton didn't even get 50%. And he's got a Democrat Congress. Yeah. A Democratic Congress. He has an amazing campaign apparatus that's still out there. That's all true. An amazing support structure that I don't think we've, we've heard the last of. It's going to be really interesting the next four years to see how that works. Okay. All right, back to reality. Governors like to say once in a year, once a year, that the state of our state is strong and getting stronger. Well, it's unlikely that line will be in Governor Strickland's state of the state address next Wednesday. Ted Strickland faces a massive and probably growing budget deficit, and the task of pushing promised education reform also is on his to-do list. Julie Carr Smythe, what do we expect the governor to say next week? Well, um, he's going to have his education. I don't know that it's a funding plan or a reform package, but it will be in the speech, at least the, the architecture for it. Um, I'm also thinking, as he's looking for money to fill this budget gap, it, it won't be a tax increase. He said that many times, but perhaps some s interesting um, ways of cutting back and redefining uh, our sentencing laws to, to diminish the prison population. So some of my early ideas on what might be in it, he's very closed-mouthed about. This is a, I mean, it really comes at a very crucial time. I mean, he faces a $7 million, $7 billion deficit. Um, there's no, not much room to maneuver here. Well, that's, that's the problem, of course. Um, big problem, no money. Um, although the federal stimulus, I mean, that's not going to be $7 yeah. billion staring him in the face for a whole lot longer here. Mm. Um, the governor surprised us uh, He's two for two in state of the state speeches in surprising us with major proposals. Uh, and I think he's going to be three for three. I think you're going to see some really innovative things, and they're not going to be universally popular. I think it's going to be the governor giveth and the governor taketh away on a lot of fronts, especially in the school funding arena. Here's the problem for Ted Strickland. Because he's made no sub substantive um, changes in the first two years. He's made a lot of small changes, but nothing really big, none of the big tackling the problems. He has put off the spending of his political capital until the year before his re-election, which means when he needs to be spending his capital on himself, he'll have to be spending his capital on revamping the school funding system in a way that'll make a lot of people angry. And even Ted Strickland only has so much political capital to spend. But what if it works? Does what that if, increase his capital? What if what works? The education reform plan. What if it's, what if it's well received? Well, define or? works. If it's well received yeah. and he can pull a rabbit out of his hat, that certainly increases his political capital. Yeah. No serious budget expert that I know thinks that there's a rabbit to be pulled out of a hat. There has to be somebody loses, somebody wins, and you can always count on the people who lose to be vocal about it. But it's interesting that he, uh, you know, as a... An, uh, a supporter of the unions, um, one of the things that's being talked about is perhaps, you know, something rather radical in terms of getting rid of bad teachers and, and setting new standards for the schools that would perhaps, you know, uh, bring some money uh, down out of that budget. I mean, the, the common wisdom has been that education plan has got to spend more money to satisfy the court, um, unless it's true, it's very radical. What about the, uh, the House Speaker, Amon Budish, his proposal to increase 
or expand teleconferencing. It's, it's kind of, you know, gee whiz, bang type of thing. But, you know, it might work for a, for a rural district, a poorer district that only has three or four AP students. Hook them up with a city like Dublin or Upper Arlington or New Albany. I think that I think it does make a lot of good sense. I mean, I think that <clears throat> distance learning is something that it, it's not new. I mean, you know, Buddhist didn't invent it, but bringing it to the rural schools may make a lot of sense. There are hundreds of thousands of university students in this country that go to school by distance learning. There are companies that do business via teleconferencing. You can log on to the web and, um, I understand, get a replay of the show if you can't watch yes. it when it broadcasts tonight at, on Friday. So uh, all that technology is already there and it's already being used. Simply being able to put that into a classroom in southeast Ohio and take advantage of an excellent school system in uh, northwestern Ohio makes a lot of sense. It's a good idea. You can't argue with it. We need more use of technology. For example, in the school choice arena, many parents are using what's called virtual or e-schools, where their kids can learn at home from a computer, connected with a real teacher, and work at their own pace. And so more options, better technology, parental choice, these are the things we want to see in Governor Trickland's address next week. Back to the stimulus package and the deficit. The dispatch reported this week a group is, is estimated Ohio would get $9.3 billion, not the five that the governor <laughs> asked for. Are we going to get $9.3 billion? Money from the skies, Mike. Um, there, there's been another group since that that's been much more conservative. Uh, you know, th this is the time let's just get out the darts and start tossing with the board. Uh, sure, the governor would love to have even more. And certainly some liberal folks in Washington are, are urging President Obama, don't just think big, think real big. Should the state take it off? They only want, f they only need five, right? That's what he asked for. Should they give the other four back? When's the last time you saw a politician being handed a pile of cash and he said, no, I only want half of it? No, of course they'll take it. Well, change has come to Washington, hasn't it? Of course they'll take <laughs> it. Your public TV might be over. <laughs> <or something. laughs> um, but this, we'll see some money coming from Washington. Right. In the form and of then, federal aid. Though. Well, and then enhanced Medicaid. In other words, the feds are going to pay more for Medicaid than they do now, a larger percentage. And that will help a lot, because that's a huge budget consumer right there. Yeah, and I think that he wants to, if he can, continue with his idea of, you know, every child being insured, and somehow do that with face in the face of this budget deficit. So he's going to have to put together perhaps two budgets, you know, one with, one without, and figure out, uh, you know, maybe perhaps show us a scenario of what it would be like you know, without this. Um. Here's the primary question Governor Strickland has to confront. Will Ohio's economy move forward based on government creating jobs or allowing the private sector to create the jobs? It's the key question for every governor. And right now there's a lot of states ahead of us on that curve. And until he answers that question correctly, everything else will just be uh, side fixes and not a main fix. Okay. Our next topic. In late December, the Ohio Supreme Court approved a rule that would allow judges and judicial candidates to officially and openly align themselves with political parties. Then this week, the justices changed their minds and blocked judicial candidates from saying they are Republican or Democrat or a member of any other party. So, Mark, this is pretty cool. You know, no more politics in, in judicial races, right? Yeah, no, uh, as we all know, <laughs> politics is uh, throughout judicial races, but Ohio does elect judges with a, on a nonpartisan basis, meaning when you go to the ballot, you don't see Republican next to the candidate's name or Democrat. Uh, however, there have been ways to get around that for years. For example, even before the Supreme Court made this ruling, it's been ethical and proper to say, vote for Steve Smith, 
He's endorsed by the Democratic Party as opposed to vote for Democrat Steve Smith. Mm -hmm. So there's always been a way around it. But kudos to Chief Justice Moyer, who throughout his tenure has tried to keep the judiciary from being viewed as partisan and tried to keep judicial races somewhat above what happens in the non-judicial races. But why the switch then? Why didn't they do that a few weeks ago when they reversed the rule? Was it just a oversight or There was an issue that had to do with, you know, and has been at a national level looking at this issue of is this constitutional, does it suppress the, the free speech? You're more of an expert on that than I am, but that's what uh, my understanding was that some judicial candidates have said, you can't keep me from doing this. This is part of who I am. This is part, you know, and that it needs to be a free flow of that information. There was a lawsuit in, Nor uh, Julie's right, there was a lawsuit in Northern Ohio a few years ago by a judicial candidate who said, I should be allowed to tell people I'm a Democrat. It's the First Amendment, let's me do that. And of course, the U.S. Supreme Court addressed this case in 2002 where they said that judicial candidates have the right to announce their positions on controversial political and legal topics. So if a judge candidate wants to run for office saying, I'm the pro-choice judge, or I'm the pro-life judge, the U.S. Supreme Court said that's permissible. That triggered many changes in the states about what judicial candidates can say and can't say, and this is just the latest tremor from those changes that started. And those position on, positions on issues seems to be much more, have much more of an impact than whether you have a D or an R next to your name, because there are Republicans on both sides of every, all these issues and Democrats as well. Should they be allowed to say, I'm the pro-choice judge, Michael? Um, <clears throat> I think that as long as we are going to have judges who are elected, that makes them political candidates. And that means that, it, in my opinion, they ought to be able to come out on, on various issues and say what they think about those. And honestly, I think it, this is a whole, this is a tempest in a teapot argument. It, I really think they ought to be able to put the D's and R's after their names as well. Because like you said, there may be people who go to the, to the polls and vote um, on an issue. I want to be the, for the pro-choice judge or, the, or the, uh, the, uh, the anti-choice judge. But there are also people who go to the polls and just vote straight DR. And I guess I'd rather have the D's and R's there and let people at least vote down a ticket than have them just sort of like, oh, I like that name better than I like that name, which is how I think a lot of people vote for judges now. Especially the, the lower level judges. Right. Yeah, and we've just come out of uh, a period, I would say, this last eight years of a lot of questioning at the national level of whether neutrality in politics is even possible. We've certainly seen it with the, the way uh, we've been talked about in the media is the, you know, the left-wing media or whatever. And um, I think that there's some sense in the public that, that there's no such thing as political neutrality. And so let's just fess up and let's just say what it is we believe. And so I think they were sort of walking that line with this decision. Okay. Here to stay. You don't see it going back the other way. <laughs> they get the last word on the rules, and I think they've been hurt. I don't imagine they'll do it again. Okay. The next chapter in the long story of the Mark Dan affair is closed. The two women who accused a top Dan aide of sexual harassment have settled their claims with the state. The state of Ohio will pay Vanessa Stout and Cindy Stankowski nearly a quarter of a million dollars each. Of course, these were the allegations that eventually led to the resignation of the former attorney general. Darrell Rowland, this happened very soon after the current Attorney General, Richard Cordray, took office. Were there, were there any surprises in the speed of this, the amount of the settlement? Frank, I think uh, most people's reaction was, it's about time. Um, I remember it's been about a year now that uh, Cindy Stout's dad called our office. I, I actually took the call. He was calling for Alan Johnson, with whom he'd worked on an earlier story. Al wasn't there. I took the call. He says, I think I've got a good one for you, and you won't believe what's happening to my daughter. Uh, and we talked to Cindy and Vanessa, and, and we saw the personal journals that they had kept um, during their time in the 
attorney general's office and good grief it was like reading a, a novel and frankly not a very good novel <laughs> um turned out we checked out what we could and it was true so we went with the story and you know it, as they say the, the rest is history um it's interesting to me that uh this was not disposed of during nancy hart rogers tenure um maybe she felt like as sort of the temporary attorney general wasn't up to her to write a check that big or commit the state at least to a, a check that big but certainly Richard Carter came in and, and he said you know he issued the apology that these young women wanted and he said you did the the right thing you're the ones who had the courage to come forward no one was saying they're perfect or did nothing wrong or whatever but you know bad things happen to them and this is what we can do to make things right does anybody have to sign off on that or is that yes that has to uh, yeah the yeah. court of claims is already approved of it the controlling board has it on the uh, well it's supposed to come up monday it's not on their official agenda it will probably be added safe to say though temperatures were taken before this oh, was the announced. money's going to be spent the yeah. question is my guess is ohioans are of two minds of this if you asked most ohioans number one they think that mark dan is truly the the wrongdoer in this situation. We can all agree he's really the source of all this scandal. But having said that, there's a lot of people who might say these women were treated poorly, don't know that they were treated $500,000 worth poorly. And that is going to be something that Richard Cordray will have to answer for because it was in his political interest to take this off the main stage and move it off stage so he can begin his tenure as attorney general and not have his running mate Mark Dan scandals be brought up while he's the attorney general. And there's some newspapers around the state that have editorialized that effect already. Well, and that is, as um, Daryl says, that's why I was surprised, too, that Nancy Rogers didn't do it and dispense with it in this sort of apolitical little interim where she was in, in charge and uh, and get it off the plate but it it was complicated I, I spoke to the attorney uh, a few times and you know they had started out with a much higher number and I think we're we're looking for maybe she didn't think that an apology from an interim or an, a you know pointy would would mean as much I would even go further than that I think that that Nancy Rogers was in no way, shape, or form a politician, nor did she ever want to be a politician. And I think this was one of those, this was a political scandal that happened under my predecessor, and this is a political scandal that could be closed under my successor. I'm going to let the professional politicians take care of this, mm -hmm. and I'm going to put the office back in place, but I'm not going to sign off on this kind of a check and then deal with all the questions that are inevitably going to come from people like us. Well, and that's a fair point. I agree with Mike completely yeah. on that. First of all, Dean Rogers, everyone agrees, is a woman of integrity who did the right thing when she was in that office. It's a political question whether you give half a million dollars to these two women. That's but a political question. An elected attorney general made that decision. Here's the, let's get into some of, maybe just how we come to these numbers. This week, the family of an OSU student killed in an elevator accident on campus is suing the university for $50,000. An OU student who lost her arm and shoulder because of a bacteria infection is suing the university and the health center for $25,000. This is this is a is bit of a quirk in the law here. Yeah. You should is that, know is that why the differences? rules of civil procedure in Ohio yeah. um, bar a, a, an attorney from naming a figure in the lawsuit other than twenty five thousand okay. dollars. Because what happened was lawyers were writing, "Okay, uh, you ran into me with your car, and I'm asking for a gazillion dollars." And then the dispatch picks up the gazillion dollar lawsuits. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court tried to stop that by saying, "If you think you have large damages, you can't say anything other than more than twenty five thousand. The elevator suit will settle." 
settle for hundreds of thousands or millions, as will the suit in OU. The 25,000 is just what you have to put in the complaint right. to be legal. Okay, so this is the, this is the starting point, starting point, not and, the and, end and point. No lawyer in the world would suggest to you that the uh, elevator death case will settle for $25,000. That will be, could be millions, certainly will be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is it for the Dan case then, right? We're done? Oh. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you brought that up because the, the thing that was supposed to happen this week was an Ohio Elections Commission hearing on the, uh, the complaints against him about misspending his campaign money and also his transition fund money. And to me, that's going to be an interesting battle. Um, you know, God love Mark Dan. He did us a favor by resigning from a political standpoint because look what Illinois is going through with Bogoyevich. Yeah. Um, but, okay, just what did he do wrong? You know, you read through Tom Charles's long report. Ted Winning did a great job rewriting over there in the IG's office, the former Plain Dewa reporter. Um, but can you come right down to the nub of it? How many concrete charges are really there? And nailing someone for campaign expenditures hasn't happened that often in this state. So that's going to be an interesting argument. Oh, no, there's, do I mean, there's dozens of things he did wrong. The question is whether they'll be prosecuted. Remember, this is the guy who allowed non-police officials to carry weapons onto state property, which is a felony every time it happens, including Tony Gutierrez, his friend. He signed a letter saying it's okay for you to carry a gun in the state house. Mark Dan committed <coughs> numerous crimes, and the only question is whether Ron O'Brien, the Franklin County prosecutor, will bring charges for that. More for us to talk about, I'm sure. It's time now for our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Darrell Rowland, you're up first. I kind of stole my own thunder, but uh, I think Ted Strickland, like I say, he's two for two in, in surprises and rolling out something that's big and significant um, and truly different in the state of the state. I think he's going to be three for three. Okay. Julie Carspite. Yeah, I stole my thunder, too, but I do think that we're going to see some interesting um, uh, resentencing, uh, a structuring of, of who's in prison and who's not. Okay. Uh, in the state of the state. Michael. Even though it's a city council election year and they have two recent appointees who are going to have to stand for a re-election this fall, we'll see city council consider a tax increase. Will it go to the voters first? Yes. All right. Mark. George Voinovich not running for re-election. Rob Portman will be the Republican candidate. And although Lee Fisher wants it on the Democrat side, Tim Ryan will run and will be a very strong competitor for that seat. You know who Jerry Austin said last week might be a candidate for that seat? Ted Strickland. That was pretty good. A little too much caffeine in his diet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk we'll to see. my friend Jerry later about that. <laughs> <laughs> but if he's right, he also picked Colin Powell with endorsed Barack Obama months. Yeah, that was a hard one yeah. to see coming. Well, <laughs> it was pretty good, though. Anyway, that's Columbus on the Record for this week. We encourage you to visit our website. At our website, you can read our blog. You can see streaming video of this show and a few past shows. And you can continue the discussion online. This week, we ask what Michael suggests might happen. Would you support a tax hike to save services or to fund schools? Visit our website, wosu.org slash cotr. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>